Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for divergent perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tsarich Iyun Podcast. My name is David Silverstein, and I'm joined today by the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva Doraita, Riyasak Blau. Rablau, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Exciting. I think this is my fourth one. How's uh, Benaz Bonnet been so far? It is great. Uh, you, one can love one's job and love vacation. No contradiction. Uh-huh. One day when someone writes a doctorate about you, they'll, they'll analyze your podcast from during Banas Manim and not during Banas Manim. We'll try and get a sense about whether there's any difference in terms of your messaging during not during Banas Manim during, as opposed to during Yeshiva year. Um, anyway, what I want to talk about today, actually today is uh, part two of a new sort of forum that we're trying here at Yeshiva uh, at Sarach Iyun, which is to spend more time focusing on one topic at hand. I mentioned uh, last time that some of our alumni reached out to me and said they, they wish that uh, the podcast could almost be double the length or triple the length. So I said to them, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, that I don't have the budget nor the time as Joe Rogan to have a three-hour podcast, but uh, I will sort of take their critique seriously and try and spend a little bit more time in terms of doing a deep dive into an issue. So last time we had on Rabbi Ellie Fisher, who was talking about the question of technology and the impact in which technology has on uh, rabbinic authority and the way in which rabbis dialogue with communities. And uh, today I wanna continue the theme of rabbinic authority, albeit from a very uh, different angle. Just to provide some context to our conversation today, a few weeks ago, Rabbi uh, Gershon Edelstein, uh, passed away. And uh, he was 100 years old uh, when he passed away. And he was perceived to be, at least in the Haredi community, the Korean Lithuanian community, to be the, the Gadol Hador, right? The person who sort of uh, was a source of, uh, of Torah authority. And um, when, when he passed away, there was a lot of discussion on the internet uh, or in different forums, not only internet forums, but newspaper forums, I guess, in different communities, Haredi communities across Israel, across the US, as to who was gonna be the next Gadol. Right? It was almost as if the community couldn't operate, it couldn't function without the presence of a guttle. In fact, someone even showed me that if you if you look right after Gershon Elstein passed away, so already on Wikipedia, right, different people were editing Wikipedia pages of prospective guttle, right, to sort of already get their foot in the door and claim that this rabbi is going to be next guttle hador. And the reason why it's significant is because in sort of in previous uh, situations that were similar to this, it was kind of clear who was going to be the next in line, right? So Rabbi Yashiv uh, passes away, so it's clear it's Rabbi Arlene Steinman, then Rabbi Arlene Steinman passed away, it's maybe a little more ambiguous, and it becomes Rabbi Chaim Kenievsky, Chaim Kenievsky passes away, then it's Rabbi Gershon Edelstein, and all of a sudden, Gershon Edelstein passes away, and there's this vacuum, right? Who's going to be the next Gadol Hador, at least the Lithuanian world? And there's all this discussion about, is it going to be Rabbi Dov Landau? Is it going to be Rabbi Moshe Hirsch? And even last week, I know that Rabbi Dov Landau went to America, and that was sort of a symbol of like him being crowned, you know, sort of the, the Gadol Hador of the Lithuanian world. But I, I was particularly intrigued by this topic, you know, about the role of the Gadol in terms of how communities are structured and the way that impacts 
uh, rabbinic authority. So you, you're actually in a unique situation to sort of uh, have this dialogue with because you're somebody who grew up uh, with a grandfather who was considered to be a, an American gadol, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Tights. You're also somebody who uh, operates currently in the Centrist Orthodox religious Zionist community. So you sort of have a sense, you've seen different communities in the way in which uh, you know they, they operate, interact with rabbinic authority. But um, I thought that um, we begin by talking about like, you know, just what does it mean to be a gadol? In other words, like when we think about it, this person's a gadol b'torah, right? He's a, he's a leader, he's a scholar, right? So from your experience, both in terms of your own reading, also in terms of your life experience, right? What is it that makes somebody ra'ui to be a gadol? And does that change based on sort of what community, what community you're operating in? Okay, so... Uh, we're going to differentiate between different communities, but maybe start with some commonality. I think um, a guttle to a great degree provides leadership and perhaps even more legitimacy and authenticity to an approach. Like we have a tradition in which rabbinic authority really matters. Okay, to what degree we could debate, but some level of rabbinic authority. And we'll talk about following someone shita. Like even in philosophy, you'll talk about, oh, am I a more Rambam rationalist or a Zohar mystic? Right. So there's a sense that it's a great rabbinic voice that provides, oh, I can be reassured that the approach I'm adopting is authentically within our tradition. And that, I think, is shared by different groups. Um, in terms of who is a guttle, again, here the ideal is not always met in reality but you would need a vast amount of Torah knowledge. Uh, we could debate later, like, which areas of Torah you need to be knowledgeable in, but certainly you should be a major Talmud Chacham. And obviously you would need personal ethical qualities, qualities of character, uh, you know, of honesty in your Shemayim that match. Now, that's an ideal world. Okay, Whether we've always met that is something that we can question. Uh, but now getting to the different communities, as you referenced, I think the Gdolim and the Haredi world play out very differently than in the centrist Orthodox world, both in terms of the scope of their influence and the depth of their uh, dominance. Like in terms of scope, we know that one of the dividing lines in our world is the concept of Das Torah. Like how much should rabbis be involved in, in political decisions and personal decisions of, you know, job and uh, marriage and certainly, I think centrist orthodoxy has a stronger sense of autonomy and a stronger sense that rabbis are not experts in the political arena, where you have this fascinating phenomena in the Haredi world where, you know, a guttle tells you who to vote for. And then, OK, now we know who to vote for. Like, uh, now, again, reality does not always play that way. Sometimes you wonder maybe more Haredim are voting for the Likud than we think. But at the same time, that is certainly the official lie. So that would be one big divide. And I would say beyond just the scope of influence, even just like how prominent it is. Like I think the modern Orthodox, centrist Orthodox discourse is not all Gedolim focused. Admittedly, so you have this conversation, oh, what would Rav Soloveitchik had said in the current situation? But I don't think that's so dominant. And in Haredi discourse, it really is quite dominant. I mean, I when I envision like the classic Haredi picture, I think of, oh, there's an older Rav sitting at a table and like 12 younger fellows leaning forward to hear his counsel. Now, I'm not saying that to be negative about it. There's something very beautiful about it. But there's a sense that th that's the dominant theme. That's what religious life is all about. 
So again, I would say there is a commonality in terms of providing leadership and uh, and legitimacy, but in terms of the scope and the depth of intensity, I think there are real differences. Well, you know, before we move to the more precise sort of differences between the communities, let's try and discuss some areas where there could be some overlap. So I think there are actually some two areas where there could be overlap in, in places which we wouldn't necessarily uh, sort of go to instinctively when trying to evaluate what is the role of the Guttle. First, the question becomes in terms of what makes somebody a Guttle in terms of which areas of Jewish scholarship um, are sort of a necessary precursor to become a gadol. Like I think both in the religious science community, modern Orthodox community, and in the Haredi community, there's a sense that you know Shas and Poskim, right, are the assumed area of expertise of the gadol. I, I have no idea if the gadolim in the Haredi community or in the religious science community or in the modern Orthodox community, you know, are experts in Rostad Gaon, whether they're experts in Kol Kitve Haramban. I, I have no idea, but I do think they may be. I'm just, but I think that the way the communities were construct their model of gadolim, it's assumed that in order to sort get into this category, you have to be somebody who's a master of the Talmud and the codes. And the question I want to talk about for a few minutes is why? Well, why are those texts sort of the primary texts that we think about when trying to determine somebody's status as a god? Like imagine, for example, somebody you know Shas and the basic, you know, working knowledge of Shas. They, they weren't necessarily experts in every Pneoshua, but they basically you know, gone through Shas significantly. But their real expertise was in the, you know, Rebchagai Kreskas. Right? Why all of a sudden would that be something which we wouldn't sort of look for when looking for Gedolim? That's the first thing I want to talk about. And the second thing I want to talk about, something I think about a lot, is the way in which Gedolim operate both in religious science communities and in Haredi communities in the sense that if they deviate in a certain sense from the communal uh, norms, it's hard to imagine that people would take their positions that seriously. Like, let's imagine, for example, that a Haredi Gadol would come out and say, all of a sudden, you know, he thought about it and he realized that, you know, yeshiva students should, you know, at least half of them should go to the army. So it's hard to imagine even a Haredi Gadol who had extraordinary authority, right, would be, that that would sort of revolutionize the way the community operates. And I think it's the same thing with the Central Orthodox community. I mean, I remember a bunch of years ago when Rabbi Willig came out with his article starting to question about, you know, women learning Talmud, even though he himself was the one who gave the Talmud Shear in Stern College originally, he, you know, started to rethink the issue agree or disagree but the point was people went you know absolutely nuts like how could it be that a rabbi associated with yu is going to challenge the idea that women learn talmud now again i'm not advocating one side or the other but there is sort of a commonality there that there's an assumed reality of the community and if the gadol or if the rabbi of a significant rosh Hashiva challenges those sort of sacred canons and all of a sudden, you know, we start to question the extent to which they're really part of our community. Let's just start with the first question. Why, why do you think it is that Shas and Poskim, right, as opposed to mastery of Chumash, mastery of Jewish thought, mastery of Kabbalah, right, become the dominant sort of uh, area that make, that sort of define the Guttle intellectually? Yeah, so first of all, I, I totally agree with both your points. And I would, again, emphasize that you're, tr you're correct. It, it's even true in the centrist community. Meaning Rav Salvechik might have been great at, you know, neo-Kantianism and existential philosophy, but he's only a guttle because he was great at Shas and Boskin. Rav Lichtenstein might have really known his, you know, Victorian novels and romantic poetry, but ultimately it was Shas and Boskin that cemented him as a guttle. So I, I agree that transcends uh, any communal division. Uh, in terms of why that is, it's a very interesting question. I will say that we're certainly a very normative religion. Right. Arguably, halakha, right, an extensive halakha might be the most salient defining aspect of Judaism. Of course, not that we don't have theology, not that we don't have ethical philosophy. Of course we do. But halakha, to a great degree, uh, is what makes Judaism Judaism. 
And maybe we have a sense that someone who is not really knowledgeable in that area, right, in a certain sense, that, that they lack the uh, the capacity to really express an opinion. And even in machshava, to some degree, there are a lot of machshava issues that border on halacha, right? If one, uh, I, li- I like to use this example, like one one discusses, you know, Judaism's approach to capital punishment. One can philosophize all they want, but if you don't learn Masechet Sanhedrin, Masechet Makot, to some degree, you're philosophizing without the facts. So I, I do think you're right, and I think it has to do, again, maybe there's more to it, but it still has to do with how normative our religion is. Uh, I will say one thing, though. I think we should still be open to the possibility that you might have a gadol who really is great at Lamdis or Halacha, but not great in Machshava. And uh, I don't think it's something the Haredi world would be so open to saying, but I'll just give one example. Like when I read Rav Hanan Wasserman's Lamdas, I think he is absolutely amazing. Okay, he might be the clearest brisker out there. And I would love teaching him daily about Gemara. But when I read his Machshava, I think it lacks the same uh, depth of understanding. And some of it might have to do with training, with personal predilection, whatever the case may be. So while I will agree that Godlet's status does depend on Gemara, I wouldn't then go to the Carly and say, and therefore someone who's great at Shas and Postgame is great at Tanakh, is great at Machshava, etc. It's interesting because a lot of times I think that a lot, you know, one of the reasons why we're so insistent on expertise in the area of normativity is because much of the way in which the guttle functions in our community is to sort of um, help navigate those areas that aren't necessarily major sort of halachic issues, but they're quite significant when it comes to public policy, you know? So you have these areas where there's sort of public policy ambiguity. And oftentimes when we have this ambiguity, we turn to the guttle, right, to be able to sort of provide guidance, even though when it comes to sort of formal halachic guidance, right, it's hard to figure out exactly, you know, what's going on. But that's exactly where the guttle sort of like, you know, fills the gap, right? So you think about all the contentious issues that sort of dominate, you know, orthodox discourse, people are always quoting, well, this guttle says it's allowed or that guttle says it's not allowed, right? So again, you can quibble about whether those areas are sort of hard halachic issues or more like public policy issues. But I think part of the issue is we want to make sure that in that gray area, right, you know, this guttle who has expertise in other normative spaces is able to sort of carry over that normative expertise, right, into the realm of these sort of features that don't have like explicit, you know, halachic uh, sort of uh, clarity. Like I remember, for example, um, again, I'm not, I'm not necessarily arguing in favor or against a specific application, but I remember one time a student of mine asked, asked me about the question of a woman leading Kabbalat Shabbat. Right. So the context was in his college, you know, that the university allowed women leading Kabbalah Shabbat. And he was talking about like whether that's halachically acceptable. What are the issues? So I said, you know, these are sort of like issues that from a formal perspective, right, you know, aren't necessarily that overwhelming. You don't have to be a great London to understand sort of like what's at stake there. But at the same time, since there are public policy issues and there are issues that, you know, do affect community and the way in which community self-identifies, I suggested that he go speak to somebody who has much broader shoulders than, you know, someone like me, right? Someone who that, you know, their authority would sort of allow the person to feel like, you know, this guy has, this rabbi has expertise in the world of normativity and it can carry over those sort of, uh, those gray areas. But getting to the second question in terms of the can way- I, Can I make one comment on that? Sure. So- it's a very insightful point that often the public policy specifically will require the need of the guttle. I just want to push back a little bit in the sense that you would need a guttle who really understands the situation, 
Like I remember at one point in Brandeis, the Orthodox kind of had the Beit Midrash and some of the conservative students who like learning wanted to introduce, let's say, broader degree of Svarim and books to the Beit Midrash. So it just seems to me mm-hmm. that I'd be very comfortable going to Rav Lichtenstein for that, but I'm not sure how going to the stipler would have helped. Like, what does the stipler know about, you know, the college campus environment, about conservative Judaism, about the writings of, I don't know, uh, Heschel and Art Green. So I, I agree with you, but I still think you need someone who really understands the situation. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're talking about communities that operate sort of in parallel spheres, but also do have their own rabbis. I mean, if Stipler, he may know about Heschel, given his Hasidic pedigree. But the point is, is that uh, outside of Heschel, I think you're right. I doubt the Stipler knows who Art Green was uh, or is. But I think that the issue there is that there you're talking about still you're working within that same framework, right? Where like all of a sudden you have this public policy question. Like it's hard to figure out exactly, you know, what's going, what's the problem is there in terms of having books in the Beit Midrash. So you go to Rav Lichtenstein, even though Rav Lichtenstein is not even living in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. He's not even somebody who you know went to college as an undergraduate but mm-hmm. still there's a sense that there's a public policy sort of lacuna and mm-hmm. the guttle sort of like fills the niche right but so again the second point uh the question of the extent to which the guttle really has authority in the community and whether or not the guttle can challenge communal norms you know like in my ideal world maybe i'm being overly idealistic but like in my ideal world of gadolm i would like want to live in a space where like the gadolm like challenge the community sometimes in other words they're sort of pushing the community in ways that the community won't instinctively go by themselves sometimes i feel like what's going on in like gadolm culture is that the gadol the gadolm are kind of like validating instincts that the community already has right so you know for example like again not necessarily taking a stand on the on these issues but i feel like some of these issues that become contentious and people like look for the gadolm for authority so you would hope that there would be one area one area, right? Let's say in the Central Orthodox community, where the Godol, where the Godolin pushed the community a little bit outside of their comfort zone, right? So let's say, for argument's sake, you were having a discussion about the centrality of secular education, right, in uh, in Torah education, right, in the context of a, of a larger day, right? So you know, let's say, for example, Godol were to say, you know, we think that in modern Orthodox high schools in America, there's not enough learning of Torah and there's too much secular wisdom. Right? And therefore, they're suggesting that for, we you know, get rid of you know, a significant amount of secular studies in favor of a broader curriculum of Torah, including Machshava, et cetera. It's hard to imagine the community to be receptive to that. So what do you think it says about the nature of authority when it's exactly on those issues that really are contentious that we're not necessarily often open to hearing an, a, a voice which sort of does anything but validate our own instincts? Look, it's a great point. I'll just try to put a little context, and I, I'm not making a comparison at all. But I think there's no structure where everything is top down, where the authority has so much power and influence that they just lay down the law and everybody follows. There's always really going to be some bottom up also. Just to give an example, and again, I'm not making any parallel, even dictators can't just say do X. Like even the Stalins of this world have to use propaganda to try to convince the people. So there's no structure where things are so invested in authority that the authority figures do whatever they want. Okay, that being said, I'm still sympathetic to your point that you would want the dolim to challenge the community to not just validate what the community already thinks. Um, I'm not sure how effective they've been, but I think one can point to some examples. Uh, maybe I'll stick with the centrist orthodoxy just because, again, I uh, something I read more, meaning if you look at, let's say, Ralph Soloveitchik's Kododido Fake, it is to some degree a criticism of the community for not responding to the incredible, you know, possibility of Zionism, uh, moving to Israel, etc. 
uh, Rav Soloveitchik made several comments about modern orthodoxy's lack of, you know, religious experiential maturity, uh, that, you know, people want to have been davened and not davened. Uh, one thinks of Rav Lichtenstein's talks about centrist orthodoxy, we would outline their shortcomings, like how can we know baseball statistics or, you know, rock stars more than we know about achronim. So I do think their voice is challenging. Uh, it's not so easy to move a community. It's not so easy to change your communal culture. So I would say I agree with you that it is not this simple, you know, top-down system. There's a lot of bottom-up going on also. Uh, I would think... I think there are some challenges, but uh, to think of like a really successful one, uh, I admit I, I don't have a great uh, model there where a Guttel made a statement that had a remarkable influence on the community. I actually remember that when Rav Steinman was alive, I don't, not that I know like sort of inner workings of Rav Steinman's philosophy, but I think he actually was somewhat progressive when it came to the question of like Nachal Haredi. Right, and different attempts to sort of uh, integrate Haredim into the larger army workforce. Um, and you know, that, that's pretty courageous, right? Because in that community, that's something which is really not considered normative. So I think, and I think he actually, I mean, it's kind of a crazy story. I think he was even like physically assaulted for taking this, mm -hmm. this position, mm -hmm. right? So there, there are some times where you do feel like the, the, the Godolm really are sort of like moving the community in a way, maybe slow, and that's the nature of leadership. But, you know, it definitely does feel sometimes like there is distance, even, for example, like, you know, in the Haredi community, sometimes, even though I don't live in that community, sometimes you feel like, you know, the way in which the Gadol model is structured is that, like, you know, you can't be a Gadol unless you live, like, in a two-bedroom apartment, you know, and there's real power right. to that, right? Because right. they're trying to say that the ultimate value of these rabbis, and it's a really beautiful thing, is about humility and about, you know, being li living with a minimal sort of uh, conception of, like, physical pleasure. But, you know, I think that the American Yeshivish community, and, you know, certainly not exactly exemplifying, you know, that ethic all the time. So there's sort of like a, mm -hmm. a not a paradox, but there's a tension. On the one hand, they want to sort of like hold up Rav Chaim Kanievsky or Rav Eliashiv or Rav Lando as a gadol. On the other hand, like if you look at the way the communities are sort of spending money and like living lavishly, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying it's, it's at odds on some level, right, with their sort of veneration for the, the piety of the gadol. So maybe right. you could just transition for, for a minute. Wait, to, wait, wait okay. I'm sorry, Doug, this is just too interesting a conversation. No throw one more thing in? Yeah. I, I wouldn't downplay, even in your validation model, I wouldn't downplay the significance of the validation. And I'll give you two examples. Like, let's say we talk about women learning Gemara. So I'm not going to get into the historical background where it came from. But I do think even if it was bottom up, if Rav Lichtenstein or Rav Salvechik had not put their stamp of approval on it, it would be in a different place than it is today. Meaning, so even if a bunch of women wanted to do it and they said, oh, you know what, it can't be legitimated, I think that changes the dynamic. I would say the same thing in Israel about from girls going to the army. There, it's a little bit more clear to me that it was bottom up, that just uh, a lot of girls in, uh, in Midrashot decided they wanted to go to the army. But if Migdal O's makes a program to cater to them, so the rabbis and Migdal O's are putting their stamp of approval on it on some level. So I would say I wouldn't minimum, even if it's a bottom-up initiative that is validated, I would not view that validation as just a rubber stamp and not something of significance. Yeah, although just to push back on that specific example, like imagine if, for example, you know, Miguel is actually a great sort of way to think about this, right? Because let's say for argument's sake, I have no idea what Rav Lichtenstein's view was about mm -hmm. women going to the army. I do know that Rav Nachum Rabinovich was opposed to it. Actually, his mm -hmm. student, Rav Eli Reif, who wrote, I think, a sefer on halachas related to women in the army, and then another sefer on halachas related to women in Sheir Lumi. I think in the Haskama, he asked Rav Nachum Rabinovich for a Haskama, and Rav Nachum Rabinovich said, I'm happy to give you a Haskama, but I don't agree with the premise of the book because I don't uh -huh. want women to go to the army, which I think Rav Eli 
Rice really appreciated because part of Rav Nachum Rabinovich's larger larger project is about autonomy. So I think he appreciated mm-hmm. his you know Talmud Mufak or one of those Talmudim could still ask him for Askama even though he didn't agree. But th- that's an example where like you know the question of like women going to the army certainly did not get you know any stamp of approval from any leading gadol you know as far as I know. And you know you're right, it's bottom up. But you know it's hard to imagine, for example, that like let's say, for example, that the community of Midaloz and Gush, whatever, let's say they would come out forcefully, right, against that, and they would have encouraged people mm-hmm. only to go to Sheirut Lumi. It's hard to imagine that really would have actually shifted people's perspective mm-hmm. on this question, even though it should. In other words, if you really are working with a model where the Gedolim are a significant part of your rabbinic sort of worldview, well, right. you know, it's not only important to get their opinion on the question of Chal of Israel or a question of Avkat Chalav Nochri, it's mm-hmm. also important to get their opinion on the big issues of the day. But let's sort of transition for, for one minute. There's so much to talk about here. Um, not that long ago, Pastor Chaim Seyman wrote a really interesting and um, very sort of insightful article about the supply and demand, you know, that he described in terms of the way in which Gedolim are, are structured. It's an article that was published on Lairhouse, and uh, there was actually a whole symposium, I think like five or six subsequent articles talking about uh, different reactions to, to, uh, to Chaim's point. Maybe if you could sort of just begin by providing a general overview, you know, what was, uh, what was sort of Chaim's uh, primary argument in the piece? It wasn't a long piece, but it was certainly an insightful piece. And sort of what was he observing about the way in which, you know, sort of the Gdolim world is sort of operating in the 21st century. Okay. So first of all, I just want to praise Chaim. It's a very insightful article. And I think the big Kiddush is shifting focus from supply to demand. Like, I think we tend to say, oh, you know, maybe they're more learned rabbis in the Haredi community. That's why they have more Gdolim than we do. Uh, I'll just tell you a good joke. Okay. I think Robert Clapper is responsible for this. One year in the Purim Hamavasar, uh, there was an ad for uh, Haredi Gedolim cards. Uh, sorry, modern Orthodox Gedolim cards. So the ad says, new uh, endeavor, modern Orthodox Gedolim cards, collect both cards. Right, that was the uh, that was the joke. But Chaim points out that it might be a function of demand more than supply, in the sense that, as we spoke about a little bit before, the Haredi community is much more built on and dominated by the significance of Gedolim. So it's almost by definition, they need Gedolim. I mean, that's how the community works. Like not having a Gedol is like not having a prime minister. You, you can't function. But since modern orthodoxy or centrist orthodoxy is less Gedolim focused, so it is not as necessary to have a pantheon of Gedolim. So that shift from, oh, it's not just a question of supply, it's a question of demand, I think is a real insight and I think it's absolutely accurate. So maybe one of the reasons why there's always going to be a pantheon of Haredi Gedolim is because, well, otherwise the community can't function. It's built upon having Gedolim. Yeah, he had this great metaphor in that article where he talked about like the, um, something like the minor league uh, baseball player versus major league baseball player. In other words, like because the Haredi community needs the Gedolim in order to operate, so they'll be okay, you know, if they need to, right, at least as a placeholder, you know, finding somebody who may not be on the stature of Revolution, right? The most important thing is that there is somebody there, right, who's fulfilling that need, whereas, you know, the Monorthodox community, since it's not as pressing for them to have this personality, they're only going to wait, you know, for the LeBron James or, you mm-hmm. know, for Michael, Michael Jordan fan, you know, the Michael Jordan of, of rabbis to be able to sort of like serve the, this function. Now, there was actually a really interesting response to uh, Dr. Samen's piece from another academic, uh, Lawrence Kaplan. 
he, he talked about sort of a, an offshoot of this question, which is, you know, why is it that when Lichtenstein was alive, he was perceived to be the only guttle associated with centrist orthodoxy? The reason why the question, I think, is particularly precise is because Professor Kaplan no, no, uh, astutely observes that there was another guttle who the modern Orthodox community certainly could have claimed as their guttle hador, Ravnachem Rabinovich. I mean, Ravnachem Rabinovich, aside from being a massive Tamachachem, published 18 volume commentary on the Rambam. He also had a doctorate in mathematics. Uh, he was somebody who led institutions both in the U.S. and Israel. And the question then becomes, well, wait a second. We know why did Rav Lichtenstein dominate the discourse? And somehow Rav Nachum Rabinovich is not somebody who's even that well known among on, among American Orthodox Jews. And there could be all types of reasons for this. But one of the things that Professor Kaplan points out is that it could be that functionally what the Guttel is doing for the modern Orthodox community is something different than what it's doing for the Haredi community. That for the Haredi community, it's serving a social sort of need that allows the community to function. Right, whereas the modern Orthodox community, it's sort of like validating right its whole orientation. So it doesn't need more than one guttle. If it has more than one guttle, it almost creates confusion. Right, the goal is just to have a guttle who allows you to say that the life that you are living, right, is something which has its roots in the worldview of a great scholar, which is an interesting way to think about it, right? And I know that you studied English and you spent time talking to Rav Lichtenstein. You mentioned before that Rav Lichtenstein himself was critical of a lot of areas of uh, modern Orthodox uh, life. But do, do you agree with uh, Dr. Kaplan's assessment that like the purpose of the Gadol, right, in the modern Orthodox, centrist Orthodox community, religious Zionist community also, is to sort of like validate the lifestyle, right? And that way when Choretim say, you know, uh, you got, your Judaism is not real, we can say, of course, our Judaism is real. You know, we had Rav Lichtenstein, or we had uh, Rasal Vechik, or we had Rav Nachum Rabinovich. Uh, I'll say two things. First of all, I do think Professor Kaplan is very much on the money. Uh, I think if we go back to the 20th century, or maybe like the 1960s, I think it becomes more prominent. Because there, and I hope it's okay if I say this, there I think the Haredi Gedolim were really, truly great. So let's say I'm, a, you know, from June 1960s, and I say, wait, the Haredi had, you know, Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav Yitzchak Kutner and Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, right? Really like an all-star team. And maybe that's where, you know, authentic Jewish life is to be found. So I think at that point, the presence of Rav Soloveitchik was really crucial, right? You could be a great, great rabbi and yet be in favor of college education. You could be a great, great rabbi and yet think that the Zionist project is religiously worthwhile. So I think that Professor Kaplan's onto something and you might not need to be the majority, Okay, we don't have to claim to be the majority. We just have to claim that we're an authentic strand within the tradition. At that point, you don't need multiple figures. So I think he's on to something. I will just add one thing, and I don't know what the answer is. I'm raising this as a question. I always wonder about the geographic angle, like let's say the Israeli community versus the American community. And I do think it's a little bit easier to be a guttle in your local community. I even think this plays out in the Haredi world. I think if you did a study, you'll discover that Rav Moshe Feinstein had more influence in America than Israel, and Rav Shach had more influence in Israel than America. So I am wondering if Rav Nachum Rabinovich is, oh, actually, I just realized that Rav Lichtenstein's a bit of a question on me. But uh, I'm wondering if Rav Nachum Rabinovich, okay, I'm going to say it anyway, even though I have a question on myself. If Rabinovich had stayed in America and been a Rosh Hashiv in YU, or been like a major shul rabbi in Teaneck and Riverdale, I wonder if his sphere of influence in centrist orthodoxy would have been greater. I admit that Rav Lichtenstein moved and managed to maintain influence, but I do wonder if geography might have played a role with Robert Benovich. Yeah, I mean, there could be a million reasons. I mean, one possibility is simply that he didn't really fit 
in any specific community, right? In other words, Rav Lichtenstein sort of, yeah, he grew up in a more yeshivish community, learned in Chaim Berlin, but like eventually he becomes part of like, you know, the standard, you mm. know, YU sort of uh, model for, you know, intellectual and religious growth, which is, you know, being mm. in college and then going to the Rav Shir and Smicha and then getting an advanced degree, etc. Rav Nachum Rabinovich, you know, he never learned in any institution you know, associated at all, right, with anything close to centrist orthodoxy. I mean, he's a Talmud of, of Neri Israel, right? And right. I think he went from Neri Israel to uh, Johns Hopkins and then from there to University of Toronto. Right. So he's somebody who like, didn't really fit, you know, in sort of any community. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious. Wait, I'm, sorry, I'm just going to add to that. Also, Gush always had many Americans. Molly Dumim had very few. And Rav Lichtenstein taught in Gross for many years. So there are ways where you could be more of a figure on the American scene, even when you're living in Israel. Yeah, but getting back to the point specifically about this issue of like the validation of of, of a model of, of an approach, right? The idea like what mm-hmm. Professor Kaplan is talking about, that it validates the instincts of a community who feel like they need to have somebody who's a guttle to sort of like mm-hmm. provide authenticity, you know, to, to their community. Um, so, you know, there is actually another response to the Dr. Saman piece by Natana Wiederblank, a Rosh, young Rosh Hashiva in YU. Um, and he talked about sort of this question of Gadolin from a different perspective. Um, his framing was basically the idea that, you know, the gut all sort of allows you to feel like you are like a link in a chain, right? That it's not so much the sense that the gut all knows the most, and he may know the most, right? It's not so much that the gut all is somebody who gives the best advice. He may give the best advice, but it, it's about the gut all sort of linking you back to a tradition, which sort of makes you feel like this tradition is just not about you interpreting it, but you would in a certain sense have a responsibility to realize that on your shoulders, right, is the totality of this massive tradition going all the way back to Sinai. I know that in our yeshiva of David Weinberg, he always starts off every year uh, with this chart that he made that traces uh, the individual Shana'av student in Oraita all the way back from the student to Moshe Rabbeinu through one of the Rosh Hashivas, through Rav Lichtenstein, through Salvatic, through Salvatic's father, through the Rechaim Brisker, to the Gra, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm curious also, do you think that like that's a big reason why you know, the Gedolim sort of model is so powerful because it, it does make you feel like, you know, you right. are a part of like a bigger story. I'll just tell you anecdotally, you know, when I was growing up, so I, I remember that um, my father uh, bought me this book. Actually, I think he bought it for himself. It, it was a two volume book and it was a history of, of JTS. And there was one uh, article in there about uh, post-Kim and the conservative movement. And uh, it was interesting because when I was younger, I was reading it. So I didn't grow up with a guttle culture. Although when I was in fourth grade, my, my Rebbe did make us memorize Mishnah. Every time we memorized the Mishnah, we did get a guttle card. And I remember he wouldn't let us get the, this is 1990, the peak of Chabad messianism. So for some reason, he put the Lubavitch Rebbe on the pile, but we weren't allowed to take it. So that's my only real connection to sort of like the Godolan world in the 1990s. But I remember when I was reading this book and and um, I remember it said that Professor Louis Ginsburg was like a direct descendant of the Vilna Gon, I think, uh, through uh, his mom. But there was, I remember when I was young, I was reading this and I was like, wow, this is a really powerful thing that all of a sudden you have the sense that like and even somebody who's affiliated with the non-Orthodox community, right, is still connected to this uh, larger vision. And obviously even Professor Lieberman also, I mean, even though he wasn't, you know, conservative in the denominational sense, he did teach in JTS and his connection to Slobodka and to the Chazon Ish, right, does anchor identity in something much bigger than just the individual practitioner. So I'm wondering if you feel that on some level, that is a big purpose of what sort of guttle culture is trying to facilitate is to remind us that, you know, we are linking the chain. We're not sort of uh, random interpreters. Look, I agree with it both psychologically and educationally and even value this some degree, I just have a lot of hesitations about it being pushed too far. So just to start with the positive, 
I agree. There's something to be. I want our students to feel like they're part of the project that happened in Slobodka. They're part of the project that happened in Volozhin, right? Even with all the differences, right? There's this constant chain of involvement in Talmud Torah that uh, and it, yearning for spiritual growth that is being part of the Jewish community. So, and if someone, if a guttle helps you feel that uh, connection, I agree that's positive. I'm just a little hesitant about that becoming the main criteria. I mean, you said before you alluded to it, you might have someone who's not great in learning, but are, is able to generate that sense of connection more powerfully. And I think in that kind of case, I would vote for the person who's greater in learning. I'll just give you one example. I hope it's okay, because I don't think I'm being negative about the person. So many of you might know that the mashkiach in YU, before my father, was a man named Rav Lesson. And Rav Lesson was a classic Slobodkanik. Like, you saw him and he oozed Slobodka, right? He walked with dignity and uh, tranquility, the grandeur of what it means to be uh, someone involved in Torah. And he didn't really speak English very well. So he would give, you know, shmuzen uh, at shalshudas in Yiddish and sing, you know, Slobodka songs. So I think if you're looking for authenticity, he was your man. Like he would walk in and look like he just, you know, came from the Slobodka-based Medrash in 1920 and uh, spoke in Yiddish. But what if it's not at all what the students needed in other ways educationally? Uh, many of them didn't understand the schmooze. And what if someone else uh, had given a, a stronger sicha? But uh, at the end of the day, that's who it was. So again, I am sympathetic to this desire for connection, this feeling of being part of the chain, but I am wary when that becomes the criteria rather than things that might be more of substance. It's interesting. There was uh, another response. Again, there were so many great responses to, the, to this uh, symposium, and there was a response by a woman named Wendy Amsalem who talked about, uh, in the piece, Dr. Stamen's piece, he was critical of liberal orthodoxy. Uh, it wasn't critical, but he was sort of observing that liberal orthodoxy with, with its like, you know, very committed sort of um, insistence on autonomy is going to have a hard time with a guttle model, right? And uh, when the Amsalam basically said, in Hachanami, in other words, she didn't see it as a critique. She saw it as like a strength, right? That too much reliance on a guttle, right? Well, it sort of shifts responsibility away from the community onto somebody outside the community. And it doesn't allow for the full embrace of communal responsibility. And uh, Professor Samen wanted to argue that that the fault line of orthodoxy, it's actually an interesting point, the fault line of orthodoxy oftentimes is sort of drawn to the left of Gush. And he was trying to argue the reason why that is is because, you know, Gush is sort of, you know, on the map, you know, even if you move sort of uh, leftward, it's still very much working within the framework that it, it believes very much in submission, it believes in authority, and its commitment to Ravarin as a Gadol or whoever the Gadol, you know, is, is indicative of their larger feeling that this whole enterprise, this whole project of rabbinic Judaism is deeply intertwined with our sense of submission. I'm, I'm wondering if you think that on some level there is some truth to that observation. One of the things I think about a lot is that, you know, when you have a Gadol or somebody who you really look up to, someone who's great in stature, right? It, it, it is a humbling experience in terms of your own sense of like what you know and also your sense of you know how you can interpret you know getting back to wendy amslam's point you know I, I think there is power to having communal autonomy sometimes i wonder you know by not having a dome around you, you can get a little antinomian in terms of your sense of thinking that you know just because you you know learned uh 
something really seriously, all of a sudden you are an expert, right? It's almost analogous to like using WebMD for medical advice. But do you think there's any value? Do you think there's value in terms of your, a person's own learning of community's own growth and like realizing that, wait a second, like having an all-star, having somebody who's an extraordinary scholar, right? Makes them realize that maybe their instincts sometimes, their halakhic interpretations, their Talmudic readings should be checked by somebody else, not because they're wrong, but because, you know, there are people out there who may have more expertise. Yeah, let, let me give a nuanced answer. But before, you end up with a very interesting conclusion. It's almost like this numerical conclusion. Haredim need multiple gedolim. Centrist orthodoxy needs one. And liberal orthodoxy needs zero. That's, that, that's how to sum up the uh, so- sociological analysis. But um, I would say... By that, the way, I, I'll just point out yeah. here that, that that sociology is indicative, again, assuming we're going to accept these approaches, of their underlying philosophy. Right. In other right. words... The Haredi community is not unified for the most part. You have Hasidim, non Hasidim, Sephardim, and therefore, mm-hmm. but every sub community needs a different guttle in order to function. The mm-hmm. non Orthodox community needs a guttle in order to validate, in order to mm-hmm. sort of like enhance their commitment to submission and autonomy. Right. And the liberal Orthodox community is not interested in that because right. their whole approach is about trying to move away from the model of you know submission and move towards a much more autonomous piece. I will just say parenthetically that again, I'm giving. There's so many. Again, I can't. I can't say enough about the symposium. But ra- Rabbi, someone pointed. Out, I think it was Rabbi Clapper that y- y- you see this even. Even, or maybe this is Rabbi Dr. Sam, I don't remember. You see this sometimes that even in liberal Orthodox writings, they'll talk about how the shul rabbi, right, is sort of like should be the center of, you know, halakhic conversations and not the gadol, right, because the mm-hmm. shul rabbi is more in tune with what's going on. That's an attempt to move things away from centralization back to its mm-hmm. localized autonomy. So I think the sociology is exactly parallels, assuming that these scholars are right, you know, what's going on in terms of the underlying philosophies. Oh, great. So let me say two shortcomings of liberal orthodoxy and then maybe some pluses. So I agree with you that I, I would not want halakhic life to be a free-for-all. And decisions should, A, come from knowledge, but we do have a, we do believe in expertise in other fields also. Okay. And uh, sometimes I find it funny. I'll say that sometimes, you know, liberal Jews might not, you know, believe in expertise when it comes to rabbis or Judaism, but somehow like in medicine or therapy, all of a sudden they have gedolim as it were. I think there's a problem when halakhic rulings become a free-for-all, both in terms of ignoring expertise and accent. I would also, I think you alluded to this, you know, every community needs heroes. Okay? And I don't think we have to be negative about that. It's not like some childish thing. You know, mature adults need heroes also. On the other hand, like, unfortunately, we live in a world where some rabbis were very prominent, made very problematic statements. And I actually want the community to be able to think critically about them, not to say all the time, well, Rabbi said, who am I to question? So I do think there is a flip side. Again, I wouldn't necessarily want the absence of Gdolim, but I do think it's okay if the community can think critically about Gdolim who say foolish things. I I think that's okay. I also think, and here this is a much larger conversation, but it might depend on the nature of the question. Like, I want Gdolim to decide, I don't know, how we're going to deal with electricity on Shabbos. I'm not sure I want them to decide, like in every couple, like how their family planning is going to play out. Okay, I, I might feel that that's really a realm which does call for a certain amount of autonomy. It doesn't mean the couple could ignore halacha, but ultimately, it's a very, very personal decision. Do you want to have two children? Do you want to have seven children? And uh, I would want to carve out a space for certain kind of questions where autonomy plays a larger role.
It's interesting you mentioned the question of heroes. Um, as we're talking, I'm, I'm realizing that th this may actually have another carryover, which is that, you know, communities that, you know, let's say, for example, yeshiva communities, Haredi communities, so they're, they're not as invested um, in other types of sort of personalities, which oftentimes serve as uh, heroes. So, for example, sports, right, or entertainment, right, or politicians, right? So you have, if the more you're invested in the larger sort of like, uh, picture of uh, culture, right? You have other outlets for heroes. Whereas I just realizing as we're talking here that, you know, the Gadol, aside from being like this sort of very powerful social force, right? He also has a powerful cultural force in the sense mm -hmm. that all of a sudden he becomes, he becomes the hero, you know, in, in the modern Orthodox community. So it's, it's less of an issue because, you know, people have, you know, other heroes, right? Good or bad, they have other heroes. In fact, and in, in the liberal Orthodox community, for sure, you know, you have uh, even more involvement. It's actually interesting. There's a scholar in Israel named Abishai Ben Chaim, who uh, has, has written a lot about uh, the ultra-Orthodox community. One of the things he points out is that, you know, part of the power is that you know, the model of the Gadol being the centralized figure is sort of, in many ways, idealizing the great intellectual, right? And irrespective of whether he's right about every specific Gadol, right, there is power to the idea that your hero is somebody, right, who's extraordinary in terms of piety, in terms of learning. Right? Not that there's anything wrong with, you know, other types of accomplishments, but there is something powerful about you know, that specific angle. Maybe we could just end by sort of shifting for, for one second and sort of wrapping it up and thinking about ways in which sort of gadolim like inspire religious behavior. I'll tell you where I'm coming from here. We started the conversation by talking about the idea that, you know, the gadol is somebody who's normally an expert in shots and post -game. He's not somebody who's, you know, very pious, right? So, you know, oftentimes I think that when people think about, you know, the role of gadolim, they often focus on their, you know, academic and intellectual achievements. You know, I remember when I went to Lichtenstein's uh, Leviah, so I wasn't a student of Lichtenstein. I read a lot of his books, and you know, obviously, he's somebody who's an intellectual giant. But what I found so amazing is, is that much of the Hespadim at the Leviah, we're just talking about him as a Balchesed, right? I would say almost all the Hespadim, we're not talking about his brilliance, they're talking about his life as a life committed to Chesed. So I guess back to the, how we started the conversation, which is, you know, do, do you think that, you know, when thinking about Gadola, maybe we'd be better off instead of focusing on, you know, the Gadol as an intellectual genius or right? the Gadol as somebody who has extraordinary gifts. We should focus on the Gadol as somebody who behaves a certain way, somebody who carries himself a certain way. And all of a sudden, you know, that would sort of allow us to unify, uh, you know, gadolim beyond communities, right? Because you can learn that behavior pattern really from anybody, right? Irrespective of whether he's Haredi or modern Orthodox religious Zionist, right? Or do you think that, no, there is power in sort of like, you know, staying locally within our own communities because we want to really have people who understand our world, who are sensitive to our world, and by extension can sort of give us proper guidance? Um, just to focus on your first point, I definitely think our... Uh lore about Gadolim should not just be that they know every Tosos and Shas. It should be about character. I will just say, I think there are two extremes that I would avoid. Okay, one, I guess I might call them like lowering the bar too much or raising the bar too much. Like raising the bar might be the story of, you know, X never spoke Lashon Hara after the age of five, which I think when we read such stories, we just think it's just not true. That's not true to humanity. So I want to talk about character, but in a way that's authentic realize great people also have struggles and frustrations and failures. So as long as it's authentic, I'm okay. But I also don't want to lower the bar too much. Like, you know, some people have pointed out, you have this funny thing in the Gedolim books, you know, Rabbi X was so great, he said hello to the doorman every day. You know, I like to think that's kind of like basic politeness. Like, uh, you don't have to be a guttle to say hello to the doorman every day. Uh, so that would be lowering the bar too much. 
but I do think we have a happy middle and we have people like this. I think uh, they might not have been centrist Orthodox, but I think if one really learns about Rosh Shlomo Zalman Orbach or Moshe Feinstein, one will discover some pretty remarkable uh, character traits that they had. And in my world, I definitely think about that in terms of Rav Luchenstein. So again, without lowering the bar too much and without raising the bar to where it's, you know, not really authentic, uh, I'm totally on the team. We should have a Godel as someone who is quite knowledgeable and also someone who has the character. I think we have leaders in our community who are really knowledgeable and uh, unfortunately don't share the same character traits. And it does impact on uh, on their decision making. Maybe just one last question, just to link uh, part one and part two of, of the series. Do you think that the internet um, and access to information, either through the Barilan CD or Hebrew books or Osra Chachma, right, has changed people's relationships with Gadol? You know, because again, you can imagine, like in a world where the Gadol, you know, is a master, and you look at him, you're like, oh my God, he knows, you know, the totality of rabbinic literature. But now you can, you know, look on the Barilan CD, and you can have access to at least a significant amount of rabbinic literature. So, do you think that all of a sudden, you know, people's relationships to Gadol and you know are going to shift as the community becomes, you know, more technologically sort of uh, integrated? in terms of our Torah learning. And, and maybe on some level, that's sort of what the Chaim are pushing back on, right? Is that, you know, we need to have these chains. We need to have, you know, these personalities who are getting their information, not from, you know, uh, devices, but from a classical learning. Like, do you think that this is going to shift the way Gadolim operate in the 21st century? Uh, not sure it's fair to ask me such a complex question in the last 30 seconds. But uh, I'll just very briefly say, I think you're right, meaning the average Balabas will have easy access to not just sources, but to a multitude of positions. Like if he wants position X, he could probably find it somewhere on the internet for most things. So I think that can play a role. I still would say that, you know, learning how to contextualize information, learning how to analyze information, uh, put in its proper context, they are still skills that one doesn't get just from a Google search. Uh, I'm not going to play like, you know, profit sociologist here. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I do think rabbinic leadership will have to take into consideration. People have access to a lot of information and a lot of positions. And maybe the way I teach, the maybe I, the way I make rulings might have to be done with a different style, but uh, that needs to be worked out in a much longer conversation. Well, I'll just end by uh, sharing. I listened to a podcast last week on the Headlines podcast. They brought different rabbis on to talk about whether it's possible for an AI to pass Kinshilas. Right? Let's say, for example, you had a computer which learned, you know, the totality of the corpus, right, and knew everything. So, could it pass Kinshilas? So, one of the rabbis, I think it was Rabbi Yoni Levin, who's the Rosh Hashiva, I think, in South Florida. An interesting observation. He said that uh, even if the computer could, you know, master things in a way that's more effective than humans, um, you know it would compromise the way in which, you know, uh, sock or sort of halachic discourse is an attempt to also link human beings, right? Let's say ordinary people, questioners, to great human beings, right? To people who are, you know, inspiring individuals in their own right. And therefore, it's not just that the rabbi or the postsake is a computer, but he's sort of a conduit for goodness. He didn't say that explicitly, but he's sort of a conduit for some like larger approach to life that having interaction with these people tries to facilitate. So I was thinking about that in terms of the question of gedolim. In other words, like, yeah, maybe it's true that, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, I can research things on my own, but the Gadol is more than just the sum of his knowledge, right? The Gadol is somebody who, you know, you do shimush talmid chachamim, right? He's somebody who, by hanging around him, you, you you learn how to behave and how to act and how to interact in a way that you couldn't have gotten just just from the books. So obviously, there's a lot, lot more to talk about here, and this is a topic that's going to become increasingly relevant, especially as, you know, 
people get more access to information. All of a sudden, you know, you have Gedolim, right, who you can call easily, or you can email easily, and you know, all of a sudden they cross uh, geographic locations and cross communities. So it could be the nature of Gedolim will change. But I think this is at least uh, a, a good beginning to start talking about the nature of rabbinic authority and specifically how it plays out in the world of Gedolim. So, Rabbi, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, David, always a pleasure discoursing with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita.